Um, tonight's reading can be found uh, in Exodus 32, uh, which is on page 90 of your church Bibles. That's Exodus 32, page 90. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them. And it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory, it is not the sound of defeat, it is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, 
Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did, did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Before I say good evening, can I ask you to leave the Bibles open on page 90? But good evening, and thank you so much, Amy, for reading. Thank you, for Ella, for leading us in prayer. And thank you for musicians. We've had three great songs. And um, if you remember nothing of what I say this evening, but remember many of the words of the hymns, it would have been worth your while uh, coming this evening. But I do hope, uh, with the Lord's help, that um, you would hear what the Lord wants to say and uh, you will respond to it. So let me pray um, before we start to look at this passage. Dear Father God, we thank you again that we have this great opportunity, that we have the freedom to meet together as brothers and sisters and to hear your word. And Father, I just pray for your help now as I seek to explain and draw out what I believe you've been saying to me over these past few days, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There may be some of you who love bullet points as much as I do, and they'll, they will be coming, but later on in, in the sermon. Uh, first of all, I want to go through the passage, uh, and I've got five slides, which I picked out some of the quotes from the dialogues that take place, and um, just want to sort of get, get to grips, understand uh, what this passage is about, and uh, then uh, just bring out three summary points under headings, which will come, out, come up later. So, in verses 1, one to 6, uh, the people have become impatient, waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. He had spent just 40 days there. 
and how quick these people are to cast aside those who had rescued them from Egypt. Yes, Moses, but far more significantly, the Lord. And how quick they are to turn their back on the Ten Commandments, given to them only a matter of weeks before. It's only back in chapter 24, we're here in chapter 32, it's only back in chapter 24 that we read when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And so it's astonishing now uh, because they say, this guy Moses, where is he? We don't know where he is. And they want gods that they can see. So the demand is really astonishing. But even more astonishing is Aaron's response. What do we make of him if we understand his response correctly? Here is the high priest, the supreme religious leader of the Israelites, the overseer of all the priests. There's no suggestion of any rebuke to the people. The critical situation demands strong leadership and we find that he's no leader at all. He has a choice to make, to grant the people their wishes or to fulfil his role as leader and to be accountable to the Lord who appointed him. A decision is needed. Does he please the people or does he honour the Lord? Like many leaders of some factions of the church today, he chose the people over the Lord, perhaps without any fear of the Lord's anger. And again, just as it seems is the case with so many leaders of the church today. They are content to distort or completely ignore God's word. If that is what is needed to keep people happy, to keep them in the pews, and to keep their monthly standing orders coming in. And so Aaron collects all the earrings and makes them into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And that is a common idol image in the ancient Near East. And the people are clearly delighted, announcing, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It must be questionable whether this means that they actually believed the calf itself was a god or, and had overseen their escape from Egypt. More likely, the calf was a pagan representation of the true god, true god and was a sign in their eyes of his present presence. And so it's more likely the people here are breaking the second commandment, do not make idols. And sad, pathetic Aaron fails to correct them. He has already gone too far along the path of granting the people their wishes. Having produced the calf, he takes a step further in building an altar. But notice what Aaron does say in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So Aaron doesn't want to leave the Lord out of it entirely. He's calling it a festival to the Lord, at which offerings are presented 
to the idol cast from their gold earrings. And we read at that festival, supposedly a festival to the Lord, not only do they worship their idol, but people indulge in revelry. revelry. So what does the Lord make of this? The Lord instructs Moses. The Lord is obviously aware of this. Moses is not. Uh, Moses with the, the Lord in the mountain. The Lord instructs Moses to go down to the people as he explains what is happening. We read of the Lord's burning anger against the people, for they have turned away so quickly from all that he has commanded, now preferring to worship the idol that they have made and to offer sacrifices to it. He calls them, in verse 7, he calls them corrupt. And he calls them, in verse 9, a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked is a term originally used of oxen who refused to respond to the farmer, trying to direct them. And that is what the Israelites were like, obstinate, unwilling to cooperate with the Lord, unwilling to submit to his leading. And note that the Lord does not refer to the people as my people, or the, the people, as he has previously. It is now your people, these people, the relationship has completely broken down. And so as we see in verse 10, the Lord tells Moses to leave him alone so that his anger can burn against them. He intends to destroy them, but he tells Moses, I will make you into a great nation. And you might expect that Moses would leave as the Lord commands but he doesn't. He demonstrates great courage and intercedes on behalf of the people. And he pleads on three grounds in verses 11 to 13. Firstly, Moses asked the Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? It might seem quite an odd question. The Lord's anger was wholly understandable. What made Moses think that he had any grounds to question it? I think Moses is stating, these are your people to whom you have shown so much grace in rescuing them from Egypt. Would you not continue to show them grace and mercy despite what they're doing? And the second, second reason that uh, Moses put forward is he questions how the Egyptians will respond. If the Lord destroys the people after leading them out of Egypt, they will think that was always the plan. It would discredit the Lord as a cruel God. And thirdly, verse 13, Moses appeals to God on the basis of his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he would make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. We might have expected the Lord to dismiss 
Moses pleading that his mind was made up and that he will follow through with all that he had threatened. But no, in verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. To quote some versions, the Lord changed his mind. The idea of God changing his mind is a problem for us when we think of him as sovereign and all-knowing. And neither of those attributes can be questioned. But it's also a comfort to us. It gives us the confidence to believe that prayer can and does influence God. Does God change his mind? John MacArthur draws a distinction between a decree which God makes us, makes which is unchangeable, and on the other hand, a stated intention or a threatened action which is not binding. Here the Lord had threatened to destroy the Israelites but had not decreed it. I think there's scope for discussion on this issue. How does prayer, or can prayer, cause God to change his mind? And how does it do it? How? If it does, how? It's a great topic for discussion. While you enjoy refreshments, you're not going to get a definitive answer from me. But there may be some in the room to whom you believe will give a definitive view. Does God change his mind? But let's move on to verse uh, 15. Moses makes his way down the mountain, uh, carrying the two tablets of the covenant law. He meets up with Joshua, um, who is with him. And as they get close enough to hear the noise coming from the camp, Joshua thinks it's the sound of war, but it is the singing and partying uh, that he hears. And Moses is horrified when he sees the calf and the dancing. Whilst he had successfully pleaded with the Lord to turn from his anger, when he actually sees and witnesses himself the depth to which the people have sunk, he cannot control his own anger. He throws down the tablets and they shatter. That is more than just an impulsive act of intense anger, it's symbolic. By smashing the tablets on which was written the law, by God's finger no less, Moses is saying to the Israelites that if they're not prepared to obey the law, then they do not deserve to have it. No doubt that would have shocked them into what they had done, how they had offended the Lord. So in verse 20, Moses grabs the calf, burns it in the fire, then grinds it, into grinds it to powder, scatters it on the water and forces the Israelites to drink it. This passage doesn't give us any clue as to the significance of this ritual, but it would have been clear to the original readers. But the pulverising of the idol into, power, into powder, then scattering it, denotes its total annihilation.
And then Moses challenges Aaron. Verse 21. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And Aaron replies, Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And what a lie that was. He made the calf. But Aaron really is demonstrating the same uh, attitude that uh, Adam had in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't my fault, blame them. And this, just to remind us, is the high priest appointed by God. Um, It's difficult to comprehend how he could behave in that way. And then move on to verse 25. Moses realises immediately that Aaron has lost control of the people as they run wild. This was an orgy come celebration of this newly man-made God of the Exodus. He calls for volunteers. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And it seems that it's only the Levites who respond. And in verses 27 to 28, verses 27 and 28, we have this account of how uh, the Levites, uh, armed with uh, swords, went through the camp and 3,000 of the people were killed that day. The next day, Moses, in verse 30, said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps... I can make atonement for your sin. And so, verse 31, uh, Moses does. He tries to make atonement for the people's sin. It would appear there were two levels of guilt. Perhaps the 3,000 who were killed were the leaders of this rebellion, and God and uh, the Lord has killed those. But for the remainder, there is that sin for which atonement needs to be made. And Moses looking to make atonement for the sin of those remaining. So Moses, going back to the Lord, he doesn't excuse their sin uh, in any way at all. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, and Moses makes this request to the Lord, please forgive their sin. And he is willing, Moses is willing, that if it means that he should uh, sacrifice his own life, then he's willing to do that. Please forgive their sin, but if not, then block me out of the book you have written. And the Lord's reply, 
Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. A popular definition of atonement is at one meant, at one with God. And Moses was seeking uh, to find a way by which the people could be reconciled. Moses was wanting a way by which he could atone for the sins of his people to restore that broken relationship. But whereas uh, Moses had been successful previously in pleading for the people, now uh, the Lord would not accept, um, accept Moses' offer and desire for atonement. To be blotted out of the book, just to be clear, was not, to, uh, not, was not eternal destruction, but was to die. And Moses had offered to die in place, uh, in return for the sins of the people being forgiven. But a sorry was not enough. Their, their sin had to be punished. Moses' request is rejected. And the chapter finishes with reference to the people being struck by a plague. We have no details of what that meant, uh, no mention of the number of people died, if, if any. It's reasonable to assume that it was not on the scale of a catastrophe. Having looked at that uh, episode, a really, really sad episode, I'd like to look at um, three bullets. Look at, uh, firstly, um, if we can... Uh, that our, our evil hearts. Because I think I could have said this, their evil hearts, but I think it's our evil hearts. The Israelites, God's chosen people, exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They are the words of the writer of Psalm 106. The Israelites, God's chosen people, exchanged their glorious God an image of a bull which eats grass. The term bull, um, the word translated calf in Exodus 32, does not necessarily mean a young cow. It could be a bull. And we would all endorse how John Calvin viewed this episode. We perceive, he wrote, the detestable impiety of the people, their worst and base ingratitude and their monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. And Paul wrote in Romans, not relating to the Israelites, he wrote, the people exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. But rather than focus on the Israelites and the wicked and godless, let us think what idolatry embraces. The Heidelberg Catechism gives us this definition. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our truth, a trust, instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. 
if we do not actually engage in serious idolatry, we're certainly in grave danger of doing so. There are obvious idols. Tim Chester, the church leader and prolific writer, recalls the time when every Sunday he passed his neighbour on his knees, washing the wheels of his car with a toothbrush. Tim considered that he was paying homage to his God. I apologise if I've embarrassed anyone here this evening who has a special toothbrush to keep their Range Rover, BMW or Harley Davidson in pristine condition, albeit, I guess, never on a Sunday. And I know you would never pay homage to your God. Most idols in themselves are not evil. It's our hearts that are evil, leading us to worship anything or anyone other than the Lord, the living God. And that is the danger, for our idols would be less obvious than that golden calf, off hidden from others and perhaps even not even recognised by ourselves. But they all cause the Lord to burn with anger. As I was preparing and reflecting on this, I was struck by the thought that even our service for the Lord, even the ministries to which we are called, can become idols. We can fall into the trap of worshipping our ministry in addition to the Lord himself, or we may even neglect our worship of the Lord in preference to pursuing our ministry, which we believe honours the Lord. If we find greater satisfaction and take greater delight in our service and in our ministry than we do in the Lord himself, then they become our idols or even our gods. Let me quote what Tim Chester says about reimagining what God is like. It is common in our culture for people to think that they can decide what God is like and so they can create their own version of God. They want to think of God as loving, but not holy, and of God as merciful, but not a judge. And therefore, people create a God of their own imagining, not so far removed from worshipping an idol that has been made, a sort of mental idol rather than a metal one. And Paul, in his letters to Colossians, wrote, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So having thought about our evil hearts, I'd like to think about our righteous God. Why did God burn with anger? And why would the believers in Colossae face God's wrath if they persisted in idolatry? Because God is righteous. And that means he cannot act in any way that is not right. And it means that he cannot tolerate anything that is unrighteous. And that means our sin. Alongside God's righteousness is his justice. In both the Hebrew 
Old Testament, in, in the Greek New Testament too, there is the same word group between, behind these two separate terms that we have in English. They really belong together, righteousness and justice. There's probably no better and more succinct summary of this attribute of God than that given by Moses in Deuteronomy 32. His ways are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. In our world where there's so much corruption and deceit, the concept of a righteous and just God is appealing. And yet it is problematical when it comes to everyone being treated according to what they deserve. If people do wrong, the only right thing God can do is to punish them. Not surprisingly, people appeal to God's love and goodness and mercy, choosing to give more credence to those characteristics than to the thought that he might be capable of burning with anger. And those who like to believe that God's wrath belonged only to Old Testament times have to ignore verses like John 3, 36. What a warning this is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. I think it's true to say that increasingly our society demands justice. There are outcries and protests if a perpetrator of a crime does not receive what is widely viewed as an appropriate sentence. And bosses face demands to stand down in the event of a major failure, moral, financial or otherwise, within their company, their organisation or even their government department. If it doesn't happen, there hasn't been justice, so society says. We may fail to see justice or fail to get justice for ourselves, but God, who is righteous, will never fail to act justly, and that means he will punish our sin. But on that note, let us move on to our eternal hope. Let us go back to Mount Sinai, Moses' failure to make atonement for the people's sin. Sorry was not good enough. The people had sinned, and their sin had to be punished. Let us not dismiss lightly Moses' offer to give up his own life in return for God, forgiving the people. What an incredible sacrifice he was willing to make, especially when he was so consumed with anger against the people. But the offer was declined, for he could not atone for the people's sins when he himself had sinned. Our next step in our journey through the Bible would be in Leviticus, which records the establishment of the practice of offering animals for the atonement of sins. Let me just read one verse from Leviticus 17. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But that was for then, and until the time when the Lamb of God 
Jesus, the Son of God, would come and lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice, taking the punishment for the sins of all who would believe on him. The Apostle Peter wrote, You were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our lives are totally transformed when we take on the righteousness of Christ. We're no longer under God's wrath. We are reconciled with him, at peace with him, at one with him. He has atoned for our sins. And that gives us the assurance that when Christ returns, we will not suffer the punishment which we deserve, the punishment of eternal destruction. But we will be welcomed to his eternal home where he will have prepared a place for us. Jesus, who has atoned for our sins, is our eternal hope. Immediately before Paul wrote that verse in 2 Corinthians, which I've just quoted, he wrote, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I'm going to finish by doing the same thing tonight. If you're not already reconciled to God, if you have not accepted Jesus' atonement for your sins, I implore you on Christ's behalf to do that tonight. Let me finish in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the reminder this evening that you made him the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become your righteousness. Thank you too for the reminder that because you are righteous and just, you cannot tolerate our sin, and you cannot tolerate your children worshipping other gods or idols, for you are a jealous God. Father, please Enable us to be free of any idols that we might have in our lives. Please show us idols that we might not even be aware of. Father, we want to be free of anything and everything in our lives which cause you to burn with anger. And Father, we thank you that we have forgiveness of sins through the atoning death of Jesus. But please help us not to continue in habitual sin. Amen. Amen. In just a, a moment for reflection, then the band will lead us in another great song, Jesus Paid It All 